0: I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two
1: Nice Jewish Boys. A little over a week ago, in the early morning hours of April 21st, Fadi Al Bach was walking down a road in Gombak, a suburb of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. He was on his way to the local mosque for dawn prayers. Suddenly. Two men on a motorcycle drove up, drew their pistols, and gunned down al-Bach with no less than 14 bullets, before driving off. Seven years prior to his assassination, Fadi al-Bach had moved to Malaysia, from Gaza, to research and acquire weapon systems and drones for Hamas, the ruling power in the Strip. This, ostensibly, made him a target for Israel's international spy agency, the Mossad. Of course, this is not the first such mission undertaken by the clandestine organization. The Mossad, along with the other branches of Israel's intelligence apparatus, has a long, dark, and often contentious history of targeted assassinations dating back to the very founding of the state. If we listed the qualifications and accomplishments of Dr. Ronen Bergman, we'd have no time left to talk about his incredible new book, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Suffice it to say, and this isn't going to be short, that Dr. Bergman is a senior political and military analyst for Yediota Haonot, Israel's largest daily newspaper. He's been a guest lecturer at countless universities, including Princeton, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge, where he received his PhD in history. He's written for numerous international newspapers, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and the Times. And finally, he deserves a special congratulations for recently becoming a staff writer for the New York Times magazine. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Ronen Bergman to talk about his new book and Israel's history of covert killings. Do you know an Israeli girl who's talented in science, math, tech, or engineering? Our friends at the Hamburg University of Technology are looking for girls who are interested in these fields. This is a chance at a life-changing experience, guys. Hamburg University of Technology are setting up the first international robotics camp in Germany for girls. The program is modeled after Google Israel's Mentor IT program, look it up, and it's during the first week of July. The girls are going to get the opportunity to build and program actual freaking robots. They'll get to hear lectures by leading women in the field. And of course, listen, they're going to have the time of their life. So the camp is looking to sign up girls from Israel. If you know anybody, if you're a parent or a teacher or a friend of a girl who's 15 to 18, who's interested in these fields, in STEM fields, visit 2NJB.com robot. That's the number two njb.com slash robot it'll take you to their site um the deadline's may 15th so sign them up today guys this podcast is made in collaboration with the jewish journal thank you for joining us dr wonen Bergman. how are you? you for the
2: invitation i'm fine thanks
1: so let's uh start with maybe a difficult question but what's the first assassination um that was conducted by the state of israel can you tell us or what's the f- what's the first or even
0: before by by what happened by the organizations before the foundation of the state
2: the book starts in 1907 on the beach of jaffa before the establishment of tel aviv um in a deserted uh poor house that was rented by Itzhak Bensvi, later to be the second President of Israel, but at that time there was just a group of disappointed revolutionists from Russia who came in 1907 to Palestine. Disappointed uh, from the failure of the coup in 1905, they were Zionists. They thought that the Jews have no other solution but to have an independent state in Israel, the Holy Land. But they were also they also brought with them. Some ideas of I would say aggressive methods how to conduct this um, establishment of of Israel, some of them came from Narodia Volya, which is the one of the communist old um, underground movements that believed and used targeted killing as part of their underground methods. so what we had what we um, had at that time at that meeting in 1907 at Yitzchak ben zvi, uh, poor Shat was um, a group of motivated Zionists but also people who believed that in as they wrote on their flag in blood and fire Judea fell in blood and fire and only in blood and fire Judea could rise again. And Judea indeed rose again from the ashes. Mm-hmm. With blood and, and fire. And in between, much blood and much fire. How, why, do, um, why were they convening that day in 1907? Because they established the first armed force, Zionist armed force in modern age, Bar Giora, who later became Hashomer, who became the Haganah, mm-hmm. who evolved, which evolved into Israel Defense Forces. So at that day, they established the nucleus of Israel armed forces and military and defense establishment. I seven see. seven people at that meeting. Now, they, Hashomer, or Bar Georah, and Hashomer, uh, used few times, used uh, this weapon of targeted uh, killing against uh, Arab or Turks that um, conducted uh, operations against, uh, against the Jews. They were trying to make a point that from now on, Jews are going to defend themselves. Hashomer is Hebrew for the guard. And uh, this was way before... Uh, the establishment of the IDF or before the Holocaust, but it was already clear at that time that the Jews, if they want to establish an independent state, they would need to have a strong military and intelligence forces. And what we later saw after the establishment of Israel um, was very clear at that time. Strong um, military force, underground force at that time with the ability of understanding the adversary, meaning strong Mm -hmm. intelligence community. Now, that evolved through time until the establishment of Israel in 1948. Um, And during the time of pre-state, there was a discussion, there was a debate between Ben-Gurion who objected the use of targeted killing, even against Arabs, even against the Brits. And the two what were described as radical right-wing underground organizations, the Etzel, the um, uh, the, the underground uh, uh, movement commanded by uh, Menachem Begin, and the what's called the Irgun and the Stern Gang or Lehi, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, commanded by Avraham Stern. Now, these two organizations thought differently. What have changed Ben guyons perception was the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, ben gurion adopted the view that targeted killing can be implemented and executed against Israeli adversaries. The Holocaust changed everything. Mm-hmm. I think the, the Jews, or later the Israelis, the new Israelis, those who came from the ashes of Europe, or those who were here and altogether established the state of Israel, drew three main lessons from the Holocaust. First, that there will always be a goy, a Gentile, who is there to kill us, to perform a second annihilation. The second lesson is that the other goyim, the other Gentiles, will stand aside and mm-hmm. do nothing to help the Jews, if not more than that, meaning if not helping the first goy. And third is that we must have an independent state a safe heaven, a refuge, a homeland, and Israel to make sure that there will never be a second Shoah, a second Holocaust, another annihilation. Now, when this is your mindset, and when during every decade, your prime nemesis, your chief adversary, your main enemy, threaten you not with some sort of um, political debate or confrontation, but threaten you with actual annihilation, he wants to destroy you physically, then you will take every mean possible in order to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Whether it was Nasser of Egypt um, who said that he's going to destroy every, th- every place or he can destroy every place north uh, south of Beirut. Uh, Yasser Arafat, who in the Palestinian Covenant wrote that all the Jews who came to Israel after 1917, or their descendants, meaning all the Jews, must be expelled. Saddam Hussein, who threatened to burn down half of Israel. Mm -hmm. Or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who said that the Zionist entity should be wiped wiped out from the face of the earth. Now, when this is your mindset, you will take every mean possible, however extreme it is, to defend your country, and you will attribute less importance to...
1: International laws or norms or political correctness, etc. It's it's almost human nature, I guess. It's the uh, highest uh, highest need in the hierarchy is to exist. So you would you would uh, you'd have to defend yourself in order to 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 allow that to happen. Now, what I guess brought you to to write this book? I mean, why why did you think it was critical to uh, to shed light on this history of Israel? The first idea came from Random House back in 2010.
2: It took eight years. Which
0: is your publishing
2: uh, Publishing company. House, yeah. And they, um, they thought it would be a good idea to write this, the, the history of the Mossad. Um, I proposed to do something more focused and do something that would have an immediate relevance to the United States and to a major discussion in the U.S. public opinion Uh, sphere which is the effectiveness and legality and morality of targeted killings um at the end of the day eight years after that we have ended up with the book which is in a way back to square one and this is the history of israeli intelligence we focus on targeted killings and assassination but i think that everyone who um would uh, have the time to to read the book and i thought uh, i hope would find find it of, of interest would see that the book is actually the history of Israeli intelligence as a way to describe the history of Israel and the history of the region. Mm-hmm. Because, and this was my main idea when writing this, I believe that there is no major, one major event, decision-making process, political security and even economic development in Israel. In the last 70 years, that was not um, inv- uh, that did not involve Israeli intelligence. There's no major advancement or, or any kind of political discourse which in which the, is, the Israeli intelligence was not involved in. Therefore, if you want to have a good and and, an accurate reading of Israeli history, you need to understand the history of Israeli intelligence, which secretly, but profoundly affected the history of the state, the history of the region, and sometimes the history of the whole world. Mm -hmm. Going back to Second World War to Britain, you know, the Brits have kept the secrets of the uh, deciphering of the enigma machine secret. Until the end of the 80s. Now, many, many books were written about the Second World War until 1989, when they started to declassify what happened in Bletchley Park in Station X. But you cannot understand the Second World War without understanding that dramatic development, without understanding Alan Turing's machine, the La Bomba, um, because that changed the war. And you cannot understand Israeli history if you do not understand the clandestine history of its intelligence services. Because mm-hmm. it's not a closed circle. Everything that was, or much of what is, Israeli intelligence is doing, has a profound effect of the general history.
0: So you shed light on the book, <coughs> you shed light on things, on, there are things that were secretive in the book. And I wonder when you did the, your research, what were the challenges also, obtaining these secrets, you conducted, I guess, many, many interviews with the most prominent uh, members of ex-Mossad, ex-intelligence. So, what were the challenges? How did you deal? How did you go about it?
2: Um, we ended up with a list of 1,000 interviewees. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's that's a lot. Um, I'm saying 1,000 interviewees because some of them... I had to meet a few times. So the number of meetings is much larger than that. Mm -hmm. And most of them are former members of Israeli defense forces, intelligence services, uh, security establishment. Um, Some of them are politicians. Some of them are members of non-Israeli intelligence services. And the main challenge was, of course, convince these people to talk. Now, Israeli intelligence... And this is very important for people outside of Israel to understand. Israeli intelligence do not declassify any of their documents. We have conducted throughout the, the previous decade, we have conducted a, a long, tedious, specific struggle in the Supreme Court in trying to enforce the intelligence community to obey the law, which set up a time frame of 50 years after which they need to start declassifying their material. Mm-hmm. And also to send their historic material to the state archive. The Supreme Court, unfortunately, let them, stole time for two years and delayed its meetings again and again and again. And then when we finally had our day in court, The unbelievable thing happened. The the state came to the court, the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, and admitted that, in fact, the Israeli intelligence services are holding illegal archives throughout the the years, and they do not surrender their um, records to the state archive. meaning that they can do with their uh, records whatever they want, if they want to destroy it, if they want to keep it, if they want to keep part of that. As if it's their own... It's a rogue archive. It's a rogue archive, illegal, and they can do with their history, which is our history, whatever they want. And the second thing is that they they said, yes, we know that we need to start declassifying, or we had to start declassifying. And then they just changed the law. Mm -hmm. So they declared retrospectively all the, the, the illegal archives as legal retrospectively since 1948... And they prolonged the time from 50 years to 70 years. So we should be seeing it. Older than the state itself. Now, then the state is um, 70 and seventy years and two weeks. We need to start. But when we, uh, when we exited the court at that day, one of the chiefs of Israeli intelligence said, and this was already 15 years ago. Uh-huh. He told me, Ronan, don't worry. When we reach seventy, we will prolong it to one hundred years. Of course. And so, you know, when this is the situation, I think us as journalists and authors and historians, we have a a commitment, almost a sacred obligation, to stand and be those ones who are implementing some sort of scrutiny mm-hmm. over the these huge clandestine sphere which is so important to everything that we do yeah which is part of the and there's no dispute which is part of the fact that we are here and that no one no adversary of israel was able to commit this kind of annihilation um but also i think um the israeli public and everyone else but especially in israel deserve a better
1: understanding of what is happening there
0: So how did you make your interviewees talk? I smiled.
1: You didn't draw any of the techniques from the Mossad you had been studying? (laughs) Which
2: is, you know, which is, uh, uh, which is, of course, my um, diplomatic way to avoid your question, but also it's partly true. When you smile to people, it's easier to get right. The answer here, you're smiling to me all the time. (laughs) Um, You devious a But, um, um, you know, Bill Casey... As chief of the CIA is quoted in Bob Woodworth's book about the agency and saying people always say more than they are expected to say. Um, these people, or many of them, talked because they want to make make sure that their footprint is set up right in history. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a lot of respect for books still. And they thought that this book, Rise and Kill First, is the unauthorized, unofficial, but yet this is the history of Israeli intelligence and they want to make sure that these, that their operations, that the things that they have done, is written in the way that they want it. Now this, uh, of course, raises another set of questions. First is, why is it so important to them? Mm-hmm. And if they are talking about involvement in targeted killing, aren't they ashamed? And, you know, the, the, the name of the book, Rise and Kill First, mm-hmm. comes from the Babylonian Talmud. A phrase, says, a phrase in Hebrew says, And in English, whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. And many of the interviewees, used that phrase when we when we talked about targeted killings and ronnie hope who uh translated the brilliantly translated this book to english have suggested the name rise and kill first because it said look so many of your of the people that you met are using this not as an excuse not as a um as an alibi, not as an, any, any kind of, of, of an attempt to justify themselves, but as a mindset. In other countries, even countries that deploy methods of extreme measures against terrorism, including targeted killing, they do not admit it. And of course, people do not admit that they were involved in that themselves. In Israel, it's different. Not because these people are murderers, but because these people are convinced that they have done what they did because it was the only thing that could save the lives of Israelis and Jews and defend the security of Israel. It's sort of ingrained in the Jewish culture, almost. Whoever comes to kill him, rise up and kill him first. Yeah. And these people are perceived by themselves as well as everybody else who, as the ones who stood as the forefront for the national security of Israel. Who mm-hmm. did uh, courageous, daring, and some lethal, so sometimes lethal things in order to make sure that there will not be a suicide bomber boarding a bus in Tel Aviv tomorrow?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the narrator of um, Space Track uh, says, "Space is the final frontier," and they believe that they are the gods on the wall; that they are the final frontier. For the safety of Israel. And this is why it was so important for these people to talk. Mm-hmm. Most of them on the record. Mm-hmm. And say, after so many years in the shadow, this is what we have done. To make sure that there is no second Holocaust. and Make sure that people are not getting killed tomorrow.
0: And the extent is amazing. And also, of course, the, the book is so well written. Um, but I wonder... Ronan, when you wrote it, uh, if still there was, because it it has hundreds of stories inside it, but was there a certain story that as you wrote it, like it made your blood freeze in your veins or made you feel exceptionally overwhelmed by? Is there such a story in this book?
2: Uh, Yeah, quite a few. Um... You know, one of the most amazing stories is the one described in Chapter 5 about that time when the Mossad was caught off guard. July 1962, Nasser marches in the streets of Cairo surface-to-surface long-range ballistic missiles that he secretly developed with the help of former Nazi scientists used to work in Pindamunda in the Baltic Sea where Hitler was developing the V1 and the V2, the mother and father of the Scud.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: And after the war, left without job and not decent salary in, in Germany, uh, they offered their know-how to Nasser and developed a huge project for missiles and uh, uh, warheads. And Israel knew nothing about that. And when they discovered that, and they discovered that because Nasser just made it public and said, we have the missiles that are going to hit any target south of um, Beirut. And the voice of thunder from Cairo, the, the the radio in Hebrew, said, here, Zionists, we are coming to close that account. We are going, g- going to destroy Al-Hayah, the Zionist entity. They didn't say Israel, just uh, they called it the Zionist entity or the Zionist enemy. And there was... Uh, Nothing but hysteria in in Israel, including in the intelligence community. We are talking about 17 years after the Holocaust. Israel still lack of self-confidence before the Six Day War, before acquiring nuclear weapon, now being threatened by former scientists who used to work for Hitler and now working for the person who was named a new Hitler, Nasser of Egypt, who is saying that he's going to use this weapon to to destroy Israel. And the Mossad knew nothing. Now, it's a long story, and I'm not going to, sp- to do a spoiler, and I hope that many of your uh, audience will, will read the book. But at the center of that operation, Operation Vitamin C, was the failure of the Mossad to kill the Germans. They killed some of them, but Nasser was just offering too much money to continue to lure more scientists to come to work in Egypt, in spite of the fact that others were killed, injured, threatened or vanished or disappeared and then the crisis that can be compared to what Israel is going through vis-a-vis Iran in these days meaning the 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 fear the concern that Israel prime nemesis will have nuclear weapon or weapon of mass destruction the problem was solved thanks to an idea by Mossad uh, case officer, who said we need to have an agent inside the group of the German scientists, or someone close to them. And his idea was to recruit the chief of special operation for Hitler. The person who was named the person who was commanding the SS Battalion in Kristallnacht in Vienna. A war criminal who fled the Nuremberg trial and found refuge in Spain, Otto Skorzeny. In the mossad a mossad case officer of german bonds said if we are able to recruit scotzeni to be our agent we will have an inside to the scientists and we will be able to dismantle the project using soft methods not not killing everybody the chief of the mossad replied you will able to recruit this otto when i'll have hair growing here on the palm of my hand. <laughs> and again, I don't want to do a spoiler, but this is really the fact that the Mossad was able to mm-hmm. recruit a special operation commander for Hitler, mm-hmm. knowing that he's working for the Mossad. It's one of the most amazing stories, uh, intelligence stories I've ever ever, ever, ever heard. Um, there are stories that I was, uh, I was sad to, to write and proud to write. How so? The story about the numerous attempts to kill Yasser Arafat, especially just before, during, and immediately after the war in Lebanon 1982. This is a story of an obsessed, aggressive um, minister of defense, Ariel Sharon, who spared no um, efforts, measures with... Very little attribution to anything legal when he um, decided to kill Yas Arafat. And when I heard the stories of what he was willing to do and how and to, to what extent he was willing to mix himself and the state of Israel in endangering the lives of many, many civilians who happened to be around um, who was named the head of the fish. Yasser Arafat. That was Mm -hmm. the codename for Yasser Arafat. Um, I was deeply concerned and sad. There was one night. I remember that when I wrote that chapter, chapter sixteen, I almost like I had. I actually had tears in my eyes.
0: It was a form of a coup.
2: And this is why I was proud, because there were courageous officers, um, junior and senior who stood firm against the Ministry of Defense and said, we don't have any problems with killing Yasser Arafat, who was seen as a main adversary of Israel, but killing him, not the others, meaning not the civilians around him. Mm-hmm. And when Ariel Sharon ordered to take down a commercial airline with Yasser Arafat, they decided the supreme commanders of the Air Force, courageous officers like David Ivry the commander of the Air Force, or Aviem Sela, the commander of operations for the, for the Air Force, they decided they are not going to do so, and they disobeyed the order and they disrupted the operation. And jammed the communication, send um, delayed data or wrong data, but they made sure that the operation would not be doable. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they saved the lives of so many civilians and they saved Israel from being
1: mixed in in horrific war war crime. Mm-hmm. Do you do you? understand though the man like I wonder if when you approach the subject of Ariel Sharon and how he because something (coughs) that struck me throughout the book is how many times these generals or these uh, directors of the Mossad um, say the phrase you know history might have taken a different course or you know history plays funny games or and, and it really is these these people deal with you feel like almost shaping history and I wonder if Ariel Sharon was saying to himself you know, all these looking at the past that, you know, you're looking at in this book and saying to himself, if only we had gotten rid of this man or if only we would have gotten rid of this man and saying, As Yasser Arafat is the guy that we have to take out. And so, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, brainstorm through his head. There, we're going to kill hundreds of civilians, but we have to take this guy down. Or would you think it was just this megalomaniac, uh, you know, uh, guy who couldn't who couldn't let go of a mission that he put in front of him? Well, I'm not I'm not a psychologist, and Ariel Sharon is not here
2: to address this question. Um, it was clear <clears throat> from the evidence that I collected that he was obsessive in the attempts to kill Yasser Arafat, and he, mm-hmm. you know, he he had no no limits and no borders on what he that the IDF and uh, the Mossad to do. But I, I think Ariel Sharon was a practical man. And I think that he realized as much as the war in Lebanon got into the quicksand of this, um, this country, he realized that if he wants to have any kind of achievement from the war, and after he let, <coughs> let Yasser Arafat go out, evacuate himself from Beirut peacefully, um, if he wants to have any kind of achievement, It could be a symbolic um, assassination, even if not admitted by Israel, of the leader of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. And that was supported by others. Now, the question of the effectiveness of killing a leader is something that we can discuss for many, many hours.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Would the Second World War develop the same way if von Stauffenberg was um, more successful? into placing the bomb in that side of the, the table and not the other one in Valkyrie. Uh, did history, would, would history take a different course if Egel Amir would miss and not killing Yitzhak Rabin? We can continue mm-hmm. um, with, with these questions. Uh, fa- counterfactual history is wonderful, but as they taught me in Cambridge, it's, it has no, uh, no practical use. Um, I think that there might be leaders the, the main conclusion is that killing a leader would uh, likely change history. But the way that it would change it is not necessarily the, the, the path that you intended it to, to, to happen. Uh, the killing of Sheikh Yassin, the mm-hmm. leader of the Hamas, the founder and the spiritual leader of Hamas, in the short run, did cause Hamas to stop suicide killing which is the main purpose of the whole uh, targeted killing campaign that the Shin Bet uh, conducted against the Hamas uh, during these years. But in the long run, it took out the last barrier that prevented Iran from taking a much more profound influence on the Palestinian territories. Because Sheikh Yassin, as extreme as he was, didn't want Iran to be involved in his business whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And every time Iran offered Hamas help, he said, no, thank you. And um, when he was killed, his successors adopted Iran and led Iran to have a, by far, huge, profound involvement in Hamas. They supplied Hamas with weaponry, guidance, funding that made Hamas take over Gaza in 2007 and and have made Hamas... By far, a most powerful enemy, more powerful than anything that Sheikh Yassin could have achieved when he was alive. Mm -hmm. So, you tell me, did it worth it? Was it worth it? I don't know. (coughs) And
0: you know, during the book, some names reoccur again and again and again, and are, and one of them is Mayor Dagan, I think. He's very prominent. He's very, you, you read his name over and over again in the book. So uh, you, you probably met him also and interviewed him for the book. Mm. He died three, a few years ago. And uh, so I wonder, c- can you tell us, what's, what's the story of this guy? Like-
2: well, there are a few characters like Meir Dagan, like Er Sharon, like Imad Mounia on the adversary side that keep on coming and going throughout the pages of, of the book. What I was trying to do when portraying these people is not have a... Do, a trying, at least not have a prejudice, not having a fixed uh idea in trying to develop their character as much it was it it evolved throughout history mm-hmm. so on both people both men Ariel sharon and Meyer Dagan, for example you'll find them with very very positive descriptions and also very critical ones um, and both men at the later stage of their life realize that their prime belief that everything that can can be solved by force is wrong and they have in a way, became a political doves. Um,
0: but how did the gun become the gun, such an important man for secret service So the,
2: the gun, at the, the bottom of it, was the chief of special operations. He believed that Israel should not, or should do everything in its power, not to go to all-out war. He thought that the triumphant victory of the six-day war was a one-time it will never repeat itself and israel cannot sustain long time long-term war and that it could do everything to enlarge the gap between big war to the second to the next one if not to prevent it Mm -hmm. we should go he said to me in one of the interviews we should go to an all-out war only when the sword is on our neck all the rest should be dealt with pinpoint Uh, focused operations way beyond enemy lines. Sabotage, bombing, um, uh, implementing uh, or or sending uh, malwares and and computer viruses, Mm -hmm. and targeted killings. Everything should be done clandestinely, and only as a very, very last resort, we should go to an all-out war. And Dagan was promoting this kind of mindset and um, modus operandi throughout his time, first in the military, and then as chief of the, of the Mossad. And even in the military, when he was a battalion commander or a brigade commander, he was always looking for these clandestine operations. Uh, he was someone said it's his hobby in the it's, book. <laughs> yeah, it's his hobby, it's his art, like someone drawing. He was also a painter. Um, he was he had a a serious malfunction function with the fear organ it was disconnected <laughs> from the rest of his body especially from the brain and uh and Arias ron um really admired that i think he saw in Dagan what he himself was as a young officer and he wanted him back in 1969 mm-hmm. to come up with the solution for the practical uh, rule of the um, Fatah and other PLO fractions in the Gaza Strip. Because the IDF was controlling the main roads, but the, the PLO was control, controlling all the rest, and there, was, there were many, many terrorists. Uh, and the gun established RIMON, Grenade um, uh, Special Operation Unit that either arrested or killed the terrorists, and after a few years, uh, basically cleared the Gaza Strip from, from terrorists. And many, many years later, in 2002, then Errol Sharon, as the Prime Minister, called Dagan again and said, please become the chief of the Mossad, which Dagan happily uh, confirmed. And he said, uh, Mayor, I want you to do to the Mossad what you have done in Gaza in 1969. And when I met Errol Sharon, Back then, I asked him, Mr. Prime Minister, do you really think that Mayor Dagan is the, the right person to be the chief of the Mossad? Um, you know, he has the name of a rogue officer, trigger happy, the, 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 the king of, of, of assassination, special operation, shadowy realm. And it's not the same to command a battalion or a small uh, troop of, uh, of, 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 of a few hundred people uh, in Gaza Strip and command a huge organization like the Mossad. And Sharon looked at me and smiled and said, Ronan, I'm I'm confident that Dagan would reinstall the prestige of the Mossad and make it again this legendary, efficient, and lethal uh, organization. Make it great again. Make it great again. And you know why? And I I went with that. I said, why? But I I realized that there's going to be some sort of a black, Macabre humor that Sharon was famous of. He says, "You know what, Mayor Mayor Dagan' best expertise?" He said, "What is that?" He said, "Mayor' best expertise is how to separate a terrorist from his head." <laughs> Which is, you know, for us for for Israelis, is it, it, it's less impolitically correct. But this was his way to say what he said to Dagan when he appointed him. He said mayor i want a mossad with a dagger between the teeth and the gun took the mossad dismantled that and um reorganizing it Mm -hmm. in the structure that he thought the mossad should be arranged and that was to have an organization that is with the mindset of going to operation the mossad is not an acronym is in Hebrew means the institute, but the full name of the, the organization is Hamosad Lemudin veTafkidim Yuchadim, which is the, the Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations, which by itself is an example for the uniqueness of the organization. Because most intelligence organizations in the Western world do usually one thing, collection of intelligence, but they do not do the following operation. Mm-hmm. The country, if it does operation at all, it's usually devoted to someone else. So the MI6, unlike the, what we see in James Bond, MI6 is dealing mainly with the collection of intelligence. If they need to do something, it usually goes to special operations uh, units of the, of the military. The Mossad does everything, or most of it, by itself. Therefore, the Institute for Intelligence and Special Operation And Dagan put an emphasis on special operations. He said, all the intelligence that we collect need to be collected for the sake of translating that into operation, we are not interested in general uh, mindset of atmosphere at the presidential palace in Damascus or some trends in Iranian politics, as important as they might be. We need information that would lead us to do something.
1: Actionable information. Actionable,
2: yeah. And that changed the whole compass of Mossad Mm -hmm. and also he narrowed down the target list he said we are going to deal the Mossad is going to deal only with two prime areas of interest one is the attempts of Israeli adversaries to acquire non-conventional warfare mainly nuclear weapon the second is the Iranian and Syrian aid to jihadist movement in the Middle East Hamas Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and that's it now when you take a huge organization thousands of employees worldwide and you focus them on two targets you crystallize the meaning of their work then of course you get by far many more results mm-hmm. and Dagan was by doing that and also by declaring dictating forcing his his adversaries to cooperate not just with the United States, not just with Germany, not just with France or Britain, the Mm -hmm. obvious allies, but also with moderate countries and forces in the Middle East, those who overtly are enemies of Israel, who condemns us every day in the United Nations, who declare Israel as a rogue or whatever, illegal state. But Dagan brilliantly realized back, you know, in 2002, 2003, that there are many forces, Sunni modern forces in the uh, Middle East, who, when you look at this, see the situation in the, more or less the same way like Israel. They hate the Alawite regime of Assad in Damascus. They loathe the Hamas in Gaza. And they fear nothing else more than Israel than the chance that Iran will have a nuclear bomb. And the gun forced his people, in spite of very strong opposition from the Mossad, who is a um, a secretive and closed organization, even inside the Israeli intelligence community, to go and cooperate with these forces. And said, we have a target now. We need to make sure that Iran doesn't get the A-bomb. And we have to do everything in order to do that. And many of the successes that were later attributed to the Mossad when not just the Mossad doing that, uh, but was an overall effort that many other Israeli or other Israeli intelligence uh, agencies, Shinbet, the domestic uh, intelligence agency, and Amman, the military intelligence, but also with the help of Sunni moderate countries in the Middle East. And one time when we are able to, de- to-, to tell everything, because the book has still, like some major secrets, that we were not able, I was not able to, to publish. But I think one day people will be amazed, shocked, to the extent of in intimate cooperation between Israel and countries that do not have any kind of diplomatic relations with, with, with Israel, but yet, in the most intimate way, cooperate with Israel against mutual enemies.
0: Hopefully less in less than 100 years. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> There's okay. always there's
2: always the next book.
0: Yep. Um so the book is amazing. Thank you. I think Eitan, we can yeah, incredibly strongly recommend it. And oh, it's very well translated, as you mentioned. It's a real page turner, guys. Get the book, uh you won't be disappointed. So where can you get it? On Amazon, Kindle, bookstores. Yeah, all, all
2: all the major all the major retails. Um, um I I just need maybe to add my Um, very, very positive um, surprise as per the uh, welcoming that the book received from the American media and the American public. Uh, There were concerns that it's very, very hard to publish a book that has nothing about sexual harassment, nothing (laughs) nothing about Me Too, and Mm -hmm. not even a single mentioning of the T word, Trump and still um, be part of the main discourse in America. Mm-hmm. And, and I was so happy and um, so, um, you know, uh, positively, positively surprised when, when seeing all the reactions. Uh, and I think this is because of a few, few things. The first is that wherever you go and you speak about the Mossad, you see a great interest. You see, really, people's eyes are blinking because they're shining, because you know, this is James Bond, but by, by the real stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when sometimes the Israeli James Bond, as described in the book, looks more like Inspector Clouseau, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there are many, many, we, we talked about the successful operations here, but there are many botched operations. Yeah. These are human beings. And they fail. Sometimes. Um, so, first, spying stories, targeted killing, special operations are of interest to everybody wherever I go worldwide. Second, is that this is so relevant to what is happening in America. The question of legality, morality, and effectiveness of targeted killing is an extreme measure um, that democracy used in order to defend itself while violating other values of democracy. Right. The the, the, the the freedom of, of a person, the, the, the right of a person to live. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, at the center of the, the the main dilemmas that the U.S. and the Western world in general are going through today. Israel, by far, has the biggest experience in dealing with these questions. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But yet it's there. Yeah. And I think that if America wants to look at what israel has done well learn from it and learn from it not yeah. just from the operational technological um <clears throat> intelligence wise lessons but also understanding the price that israel um, paid and still paying for acquiring such powers mm-hmm. yeah so the book
0: is everywhere: Amazon, Kindle, digital bookstores, and also you are on Twitter, right? Yep. How how can we find you there? Ronan Bergman. Ronan Bergman, also on Facebook, also in the New York Times, and all over the web. And so, so and buy the book.
2: And hopefully soon, uh, we will be able to announce that one of the main um, TV networks in America have acquired the book wow. for a dramatic series. Wow. And, um, yeah,
1: actually, reading it, you you almost can't help but imagine it as uh, on screen. Yeah. Also, it it's can like, be six
0: seasons uh, yeah. of a TV show.
1: I
2: think that this is what they are hoping for.
0: <laughs> so, before we go, uh, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. It's a big Jewish uh, newspaper website, Jewish news uh, source in Los
1: Angeles, uh, jewishjournal.com. And, and uh, we have a donation link on the website, guys. We do this on our free time, so if you guys want, feel like helping us out, then go to 2NJB.com and click Donate. Thank you so much. Thank you so Bergman. much, Dr. Good Thanks. luck with the book. It was a book. pleasure and an honor. Thank you.